Well, uh, good morning. Good to be with you all again this morning. If you are new or visiting, my name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, As always, I'm really looking forward to studying God's Word with you guys together this morning. Uh, We have been studying through uh, a book of the Bible uh, called Colossians, and Colossians is a letter that is written to a church in the city of Colossae, kind of an ancient uh, modern-day Turkey in that area. It's written by the Apostle Paul, and What's one of the things that's important to understand about the letter of Colossians is that um, uh, Paul had never met these people. In fact, Paul's actually in prison in Rome, but the fact that he's never met them doesn't change the fact that God has really just given him a deep heart for these people. He, he really, really cares about them. And his writing to them, his letter, just like every letter that anyone writes ever, it has a reason why it's written. The letter of Colossians is written uh, by the Apostle Paul because his chief concern is that this church was in danger of succumbing to uh, what we call religious syncretism. And syncretism is uh, simply the merging or the blending of lots of different ideologies or thinkings. And what was happening is that this, cha- this church was really in danger of abandoning the gospel, not by rejecting it, but by adding things to it. They were in danger of rejecting the gospel, not by, they were in danger of abandoning the gospel, not by rejecting it, but by adding things to it. What Paul's trying to do in the book of Colossians is not just to safeguard this church against one particular sketchy teaching or one particular issue, but rather what he's trying to do is he's trying to teach them, he's trying to train them to be able to discern for themselves what is in line with the gospel and what is true and what is worth holding fast to. So Paul's solution to the problem of religious syncretism for the Colossians and for us as well is that he wants to remind us about two central truths, two two fundamental core things that we need to know about the person and the work of Jesus, namely his supremacy and his sufficiency. And Paul knows that if the Colossians church and if we as well would hold fast to these truths and the implications for them in our lives, then that would be the best possible safeguard we could have against abandoning the gospel through religious syncretism. It could be the best possible safeguard we could have against those things. And so we saw a few weeks ago as Paul began to hammer home the supremacy of Jesus, and in in no uncertain terms, Paul lays out that who Jesus is and, and what he's done, and what he says is that uh, is that Jesus is supreme. He is God. He is the Lord of everything. What Paul says is that it's because Jesus is supreme, because he is the king of everything, because he is God, that he's the sufficient savior that we must exclusively cling to. You see, Jesus cannot be one of many ways to right relationship with God. Jesus is either the only savior or he is not a savior at all. Jesus is either the only savior or not a savior at all. There's no way he can be one of many options because to say that he is one of many is to say that he is not supreme. And to say that he is not supreme removes all of his ability to save. Instead, Paul says, no, it's because Jesus is supreme that he is, that his sacrifice on our behalf for our sins is sufficient. He paid the price for our sinful rebellion. Only he could pay it. And 
only he did. And so Paul gave us this reminder that we must have a robust and a firm faith in the supremacy of Jesus because without the supremacy of Jesus, there is no sufficiency in Jesus. And then Paul went on and began talking to us about the, the good news about the sufficiency of Jesus and why it really is good news, not just that Jesus is supreme, but that he is enough. And we saw last week as we celebrated Easter together, Paul proclaimed to us the truth that Jesus plus nothing is everything that we need. In Christ, God accomplished all that was needed to make us right with him. Throughout this letter, Paul has called us, said that we are dead in sin, that we are enemies of God, that we are condemned for our sin. But in Christ, what he says is that God made us alive. Instead of being God's enemies, we're now his children. Last week we said, we saw as Paul proclaimed to us that uh, on the cross, God canceled our record of debt the debt that we owed for our sinful rebellion and the payment that was needed to to make up for that, Jesus paid on the cross for us. And so we're no longer slaves to sin, but now we've been given new hearts that can actually pursue God because we've been raised to new life with him. And even more, what Paul says is that we in Christ have been brought to fullness. That is going to be so critical as we begin our passage this morning. You see, Paul is saying there is nothing you could add to Jesus' sacrifice to make it more sufficient. It was already good enough. It was already complete. It was already finished. And when we try to add things to it, it just demeans Jesus. It just detracts from him. What we're saying is, Jesus, what you did wasn't enough when we try to add things to it. Instead, Paul calls us to a, a robust belief in the, in the truth that we are indeed in, in Christ. We are complete. God is fully pleased with us because he is fully pleased with Jesus. And by faith, we are found in him. Jesus is enough. He is sufficient to save us and to make us right with God. And we said last week, Jesus plus nothing is everything that we need. But the opposite is also true. See, Jesus plus anything is nothing. Jesus plus anything. It's like multiplying by zero. You always get nothing. When we rely on anything in addition to faith in the person and the work of Jesus to make us right with God, what we do is we undermine the work of Christ on our behalf. You see, the gospel is not Jesus plus. The gospel is not Jesus or. The gospel is just him. And that's really good news. See, Paul's emphasis last week was on the sufficiency of Jesus for our salvation, for for making us right with God. But as we begin our study this week, as we finish up the chapter 2, what I, what I want us to see is that the good news about the sufficiency of Jesus isn't just about our salvation. It's about our sanctification as well. Sanctification is just a fancy spiritual, it's a fancy theological word for what it means to grow up in Christ, for what it means to increasingly look more and more and more like Jesus, which is the call of every Christian, not just to be saved, but to increasingly look more and more like Jesus in our actions, in our attitudes, in our thoughts, in our behaviors, in all of that. And this week what Paul's going to say is that His emphasis on the sufficiency of Jesus is going to be on our sanctification. Jesus is the one who makes us right with God, and Jesus is the one who empowers us to live like him. See, that's what we talk about at River City. Every week when we get up here, one of the the announcers always talks about how our vision is growing in the gospel, making disciples, and planting churches. And we talk about what it means to be a people who is growing in the gospel. This is what we're talking about. 
We're talking about increasingly relying on and looking to Christ and his gospel to be the thing that not only saves us, but to be the thing that changes our hearts and increasingly grows us up into likeness in him. You see, the good news of the gospel is not just the first thing that we learn as Christians and then move on past. The gospel is the thing that is the, it's the hub of the wheel. It's the thing that by which we must connect every part of our lives directly to You see, because what happens when we don't connect everything in our lives back to the gospel, back to the sufficiency of the person and the work of Jesus, what always happens is that we start relying on other things. We start trusting other things. We start looking to other things. We start hoping in other things. That's the very issue that Paul's addressing this morning in our passage in Colossians chapter 2. You see, the message that the Colossian church was hearing is that Jesus was good. If we really want God to be pleased with us, if we really want to be varsity Christians, then what you've got to also do is you've got to make sure you celebrate all the Jewish festivals and all the Jewish traditions. You've got to make sure you really strictly follow all of those. Jesus is good, but if you really want God to be pleased with you, you, you really know that you're a varsity-level Christian if you have these special angelic visions that you go on talking about all the time. Jesus is good, but you, you really know that God is pleased with you. If, you. if you really want to be a varsity-level Christian, then you've got to be super strict about what you eat and what you do and where you go. What Paul's going to remind us about this morning is that while those things sometimes look really spiritual, they can't actually change your heart. They don't make you more like Jesus. And in fact, a reliance on these things is not only worthless, it's rebellion. A reliance on our own effort is not just worthless, it is rebellion. You see, it's Jesus plus Instead, Paul's message for us this morning is that Jesus is the one that we must exclusively cling to, not just for our salvation, but also for our sanctification as well. So you, Jesus plus nothing is all we need. So with that in mind, let's pray. We'll dive into our passage this morning. Lord Jesus, uh, man, just as, God, just as I, I, I preached this morning about not relying on our own effort God, it's just so easy for me to rely on my own effort and my preaching as I teach. God, I just confess that to you. God, I ask just that you'd root that out of my heart this morning. God, I want to rely on you so that our time together would be fruitful and good, that it would be for your glory and our good as we we just gladly put our reliance and our trust and our hope in you for everything in our lives. God, we just come to you. God, all of us have this tendency towards relying on ourselves, and so God, we just want to rely on you. I pray you'd fill me with your spirit, just just so that our time together would just be fruitful and good, that it'd be life-giving, because it's from you. God, I don't have anything to bring to the table that you haven't given me. Anything I bring on my own is just worthlessness, and so God, I just ask that our time together would be good, because it would be from you. God, give us teachable hearts that we might know your word, that we might live in light of it. God, we need your help. In your good name, amen. Amen. Well, if you don't have a Bible, uh, there is a stack of Bibles on, the, on a cart in the back there. You are welcome to have one of those. If you don't have a Bible, that's our gift to you. Um, but this morning, we are in Colossians chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 16 through 23. It reads this way. Paul, again, writing here, he says, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or in regards to a religious festival or a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. 
Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes on into great detail about what they have seen. They're puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. For since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you are still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use are based merely on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body but they lack any value in restraining the sensual indulgence of the flesh. You see, the false gospel that Apostle Paul is addressing this morning, the teaching that is threatening to undermine the sufficiency of Jesus and the power of the gospel, it's the message that Jesus plus your own effort is what really pleases God. Jesus plus your rule following is what really pleases God. Jesus plus your adherence to the church calendar is what really pleases God. There's another word for this. It's called legalism. Most of us, when we hear that word, what we think is just rules. Legalism is just an overemphasis on rule following. But legalism is a much deeper problem than that. John Piper, I think, just really offers a really helpful twofold definition of legalism that I think gets at the heart of the real problem of legalism. He says it this way. He says, on one hand, legalism means treating biblical standards of conduct as regulations to be kept, this is key, by our own power in order to earn God's favor. And on the other hand, it means erecting specific requirements of conduct beyond the teaching of Scripture and making adherence to them the means by which a person is qualified to become a part of God's family, by which a person is qualified to be a Christian. Again, legalism, it's twofold. One, it's about trying to keep God's commands in our own power. And two, it's about adding things to God's commands. as the as the entrance test, as the requirement for participation in his family. You see, the same problem is really at the root of both of those things. The problem is self-sufficiency. See, in the first case, we rely on our own power to make ourselves moral. In the second case, we rely on our own power to make God's people moral, make the church moral. In the first case, we fail to rely on the power of God for our own sanctification. And in the second case, we fail to rely on the power of God for the sanctification of other people. You see, legalism is a huge deal because legalism is not just an overemphasis on rule following. Legalism is a rejection of the sufficiency of Jesus. I just need you to hear that. Legalism is not just an overemphasis on rule following. It is a rejection of the sufficiency of Jesus. Legalism is a reliance on ourselves to please God and to merit his favor. Self-sufficiency is an absolute affront to the sufficiency of Jesus and the good news of the gospel. You see, the real danger of the false gospel of legalism is that it often appears really spiritual. It often looks really spiritual. Paul writes about this in verse 23. He says, Such regulations indeed have the appearance of wisdom. 
You see, this young class in church was being inundated with ideas from all around them, all kinds of religious ideologies and thinking. For them, some false thinking, looks like it is for us, is easier to spot than others, right? If somebody was to come up here and try to teach and preach you to, to you instead of me, right, and they come up here and they say, you know what, Jesus, just really not that big a deal. Like, you know what, let's, instead, let's just go pray to some spirits that we kind of walk around Dubuque and find. And you'd be sitting there, and you'd be thinking, nope, no, 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 no. I see, I see where this is going, no, 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 right? It's very obvious that that's not the gospel, right? But what is a lot harder to spot is the people that seem really spiritual, but just subtly add to or subtly remove things about the person and the work of Jesus. You see, they say things like, Jesus is good. But the real emphasis is on whether or not you've been baptized as a security for your foundation with God. Jesus is good, but the real emphasis is on whether or not you take communion to maintain your standing with God. Jesus is good, but the real emphasis is on whether or not you're following these certain set of specific rules. You see, Jesus is good. We're on team Jesus. But you've got to add these things. Those are harder to spot. See, there were people in the Colossian church that looked really spiritual. Some of them were super dedicated to following the Jewish festivals and having church on Saturday like good Jews always did. There were some uh, in, the, in the Colossian church that were always talking about these visions that they had that they thought were these special revelations from God. Right? And they were talking about these angelic visions as, as though they were this incredibly important thing. And some people in the Colossian church were, were just incredibly strict about what they ate and what they drank and where they went and what they did. It must have been really surprising for the Colossians to hear Paul's words about them. To hear Paul's words about these seemingly very spiritual people. In verse 17 he says they're just chasing shadows by hearing to all these Jewish traditions and principles. Verse 18, they are delighting in false humility and they are puffed up with an unspiritual mind by getting caught up in all these angelic visions and which he says are, are just not legit. In verse 22 and 23, these people who are just following man-made, self-imposed rules and they're not even helping. They're not even helping. Verse 23, he says, all this stuff, it lacks any value. You see, their spirituality of these people was worthless because it didn't have anything to do with Jesus. Verse 19, Paul says, what happens is they've lost connection with the head. He's talking about Jesus there. You see, their spirituality was worthless because it has everything to do with their own effort being the basis of their relationship with God and of their spiritual maturity. By their performance, by their effort, they were going to attempt to please God. You see, that doesn't work because God's standard for being impressed is perfect in every way. And just a heads up, that's none of us. God's standard for being impressed is perfection. None of us are getting there. It's okay to throw in the towel on that one. You see, it's easy as Christians to be deceived like this young Colossian believers had been by, their seemingly, by these seemingly spiritual types. It seems very spiritual to measure our Christian growth by looking to our separation from the world to be the thing as the, as, that's the evidence of our Christian maturity. 
You know, we're different. We're, we're really spiritual because we don't do X, Y, Z. We're really spiritual. We're really, we're, we're varsity Christians because we do, we are, we're committed to X, Y, Z. But the Bible's really clear that that's not the mark of Christian maturity. The mark of Christian maturity is an ongoing, increasing, ever deepening reliance on the person and the work of Jesus. That's the mark of what it means to be a growing, maturing follower of Jesus. What this produces is obedience. But I just need you to hear this. The appearance of obedience is not what God is after. The appearance of obedience is not what God is after. He's after our hearts. He's after our hearts that would be given over to him entirely, completely, wholly. What he wants is our desires. What he wants is our hearts, who we are. And that's something that rule following can never change. You see, you cannot legislate a heart into righteousness. So Paul says in verse 20, why do you submit yourselves to these regulations? Why do you submit yourselves to these rules? He's quoting these false teachers, of quoting something they would have been saying to the people, don't taste, don't touch, don't handle. These weren't, he's, he's not talking about things God has said. He's talking about things that they have said personally. Paul says they have the appearance of wisdom, of self-made religion, but they are worthless in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. He's saying, don't be deceived. Don't be taken captive, as he said earlier in chapter 2, by empty philosophy which depends on human tradition and not on Christ. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul writes along these same lines. He says, are you so foolish, Galatians? Have you been bewitched after beginning by means of the Spirit? Are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? He's saying, Christ alone is the one who has saved you. Stop trying to add to him. Stop trying to rely on other things. There's only one thing that saves you. There is only one thing that changes you. It's just Jesus. It's just Jesus. Him. It's the good news of his gospel. Paul's saying our pastors this morning, legalism, it's not extra spiritual. Legalism is rebellion. It is a rejection of the sufficiency of Jesus to be the thing that grants us favor with God. Legalism cannot change our own hearts. It just masks the real issue. It doesn't fix the problem of our rebellious heart. It never could. It's just sin management. It's not heart change. And here, here is the big deal about, about why legalism is such, such re, is why it's rebellion at its heart. I met Chandler, I think he just says it really helpfully this way. He says, what ends up happening when you manage your own behavior rather than pressing into Christ and letting him expose you and your need for a savior is that if you gain success in any of those areas where you're trying to manage your growth, then that area of sin is simply replaced with a new one. It's one of pride and one of arrogance, which is far more difficult to penetrate than the real issue itself. You see, if you can fix yourself, then what do you need God for? And the very nature of the, like the absolute root of the gospel is that you cannot fix yourself. 
You don't have what you need. You need one outside of you to come renew and restore and change you from the outside because all we want internally is our own good. All we want internally is our self-sufficiency. And the good news of the gospel is that in yourself, you don't have what you need, but Jesus is all that you need and he's the one that changes you. God calls us to holiness. He calls us to obedience. But I just, I need you to hear this. Trying to obey in your own power is just as wicked as choosing not to obey at all. Trying to obey in your own power, by your own strength, is just as wicked as trying, is just ignoring God's rules altogether. Because both, what both of them are saying is, God, I don't need you, I will do it myself. Rather, if we really want to fix the problem of our evil desires, our over-desires, our indulgences, then what we actually have to do is deal with the disease and not the symptoms. You see, legalism is an attempt to manage the symptoms of the problem of the heart without actually fixing it. You see, only the gospel changes who we are. Only the gospel gives us a new heart which actually longs to obey and wants to obey and wants to pursue Jesus. Only Jesus can change our hearts. And so the question is, how do we overcome the temptation towards legalism? I would just say the first thing that, we, that all of us need to do is to repent. You see, legalism is not out there in someone else. Legalism is in here in all of us. Legalism is not just in those stodgy Christians who think that you should only read the KJV and make sure that women always wear skirts past their ankles and that going to the movies is the essence of evil in our world. No, see, the tendency of the human heart is to rely on what we do to be the basis for how God views us. That's the, that's the default tendency of every heart to rely on our own performance, to rely on our own works to be the thing that changes our standing and our favor with God. Sometimes legalism is hard to identify in our own heart, but just let me ask you a few questions. When you sin, do you just beat yourself up about it? When you sin, do you try to clean yourself up before you go to God? Do you wait a few days until, until the freshness of that rebellion is kind of worn off till you don't feel quite as dirty anymore? Do you wait a few days before you come to God and ask him for help? When God convicts you of sin, is your first line of defense just to try to erect barriers to keep you from sinning in the future? When God convicts you of sin, is, is your solution just to try harder and try not to mess up next time? When you see the sin of others, what is the solution that you think that they need? Do you think they just need better habits? Do you think they just need more discipline? Do you think they just need to be uh, just more dedicated? Why do you do your quiet times? Why do you spend time reading and talking with God? Because you think you're supposed to do it? Because you want your day to go better? How do you measure success in that? Is it how many days you do it in a row? All of that is legalism. All of that is us depending on our own effort. It's a reliance on ourselves, on our behavior, on our performance, on our effort, and not on Jesus. 
You see, legalism is rebellion. Trying to obey God without him is just as wicked as disregarding God altogether. But I need you to hear this too. Legalism is not just rebellion. Legalism is unbelief. It's unbelief in God's power to save us and to change us. It's unbelief in God's power to save and change others. See, the reason we just try to erect all the barriers, the reason we try to just do as best as we can to follow all the rules, is because we think, how else are we going to do it? How else are we going to obey? How else, how else could we possibly do what God asks us to do? What we forget is that God says, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you a heart that not just feels like it has to obey, I'm going to give you a heart that longs to obey, that desires it that is motivated out of love to pursue it. So our repentance is not just from self-sufficiency, it's from unbelief, which brings us to the second thing that we're going to need to do to root out legalism in our own hearts. You see, repentance is not just about rejecting sin. Repentance is also about rejoicing in the truth. And if we're going to be a people who relies not on legalism for our holiness, but on the person and the work of Jesus, what's going to have to happen is that we're going to have to rejoice in the good news about the gospel regularly. You see, the weapon against unbelief is not trying harder. The weapon against unbelief is not more dedication. The weapon against unbelief is rejoicing in the truth more. Why do you think I tell you about the gospel so much? Why do you think that's the thing I keep coming back to over and over and over and over again? It's because the gospel is the thing that changes us. It's the one thing that changes us. And we forget it. I forget it. I needed the reminders every week just as much as you do. Why do you think we celebrate communion every week? We do it every week because communion reminds us about Jesus. It reminds us about all that he did and our dependence on him and our reliance on him. And we do it every week because we forget. See, rejoicing in the gospel, it involves two things, I think. It involves remembering our sin. I think a lot of times people just tell you, you know, just move on past it. Just forget about it. Today's a new day. Just just try to forget the sin that you've had in the past. But that's not the way the Bible talks about how we should think about our sin. Instead, the Bible talks about that we should, instead of forgetting our sin, it says that we should soberly remember it. The Apostle Paul, he talks often about his rebellious heart. He doesn't do it because he feels guilty. He doesn't do it because he feels ashamed. He does it because he wants to remember how much he needed saving. See, what legalism does is it just cleans us up, and what it does is it makes us forget how much we really needed a Savior. Because our lives look clean on the outside, and things look tidied up, and things look presentable. And we forget how much we really, we forget how rebellious our heart is. We forget what we really needed saving from is not just a dirty exterior, but a heart that rejected God. See, the good news is only good if there's bad news. We have to remember that we were dead, that we were enemies of God, that we, without him, had no hope, that we needed a Savior. But it's here that we get the second critical part of rejoicing in the gospel. That's remembering the Savior that came for us. 
You see, Jesus is the king of all. Jesus lived and died, and he did it in your place for your sin. There's no greater sacrifice than that. There is no greater love than that. There is no wilder depiction of grace than that. And what happens is when we rejoice in not just our need for a Savior, but the Savior that came to rescue us, is that it builds in us a confidence and a peace and a rest and a hope in in Him. It builds in us a a dependence, a connection, as Paul says in verse 19, a connection with the head. The source of all growth is God who does it in and through the person and the work of Jesus. And what happens is when we rejoice in the gospel regularly, it fuels our longing to obey. Not, and it does it out of love and out of joy and out of gratitude and out of thankfulness because what happens is when we remember our sin and we remember our Savior, what happens is we see how much we didn't deserve it. We see how much we could never have earned it, and it just becomes this overflowing joy in our hearts. It says, Jesus, you owed me nothing, and yet you gave me everything. We remember our need for a Savior and how greatly Jesus has met our need. What happens is we overflow with thankfulness. What that looks like is it looks like obedience looks like lives that are in line with God's word and his desires and his priorities. John Piper writes it this way, if we try to defend ourselves or our church with pea shooter regulations, we will be defeated even before we begin. The only defense is to be rooted and built up in Jesus. As we remember him, as our hope is increasingly found in him, what will happen is we won't just be we won't just have our the fuel of our longing to obey happen. We'll also have as it'll quicken the time it takes for us to come to God when we do sin. You see, the mark of spiritual maturity is not just sinning less. The mark of spiritual maturity is also how quickly we run to God when we do sin. You see, when the gospel is increasingly rooted deep into your heart, the only that's the only way that you're going to sin less. And it's the only way that when you do sin, you'll be able to run to Jesus because you you know that you are already loved. You know that you are already forgiven. You know that his sufficient work accomplished everything that was needed to secure your standing with him. And so nothing you do can merit anything better and nothing you do can mess it up. And so when you sin, what you realize is that what you need is the person and the work of Jesus. And so when you sin, you come running to him and you say jesus what i need is you i need you to restore me i need you to give me a new heart i need you to put within me the desires that you have because i want something else and what that does is it brings us to the last thing you see legalism is about self-reliance but gospel-centered growth is about reliance God. It's about relying on the Spirit of God. You see, you and I have been given the same Spirit. The same Spirit that was in Jesus that empowered Him to obey is the same Spirit that is in us. People often uh, talk about the way that you uh, the way that you avoid sin, the way that you fight sin is just you memorize Scripture. They often bring us back to the passage where Jesus is in the desert, 
right? And they just, well, the devil just tempted him, and he just quoted scripture. And, and so if we just will quote scripture, then that'll be the way that we fight sin. And like, I just want to say, I think memorizing scripture is really good, and I think it is important. But just like memorizing Bible verses isn't going to change your heart. It is truth. It is what we need to dwell on. It is what we need to, to focus on. But the thing that keeps us from sinning, Apostle uh, Luke, or Luke, who writes the letter of, of Acts and who writes the, those stories, what he says is that Jesus went into the desert filled with the Spirit. If we want to obey, it's not about relying more on ourselves. It's about relying on the Spirit's power to change us. You see, the central job of the Holy Spirit is to shine light on Jesus and the gospel. What that does, when, when you ask the Spirit of God to empower you to obey, when you ask him to remind you about Jesus, to remind you about all that God has done in you and for you in the person and work of Jesus, what happens is it pulls you in a new direction. You see, sin is not just like, Sin is it's just believing a lie. It's just the, the belief that this thing, this whatever it is, would really satisfy. And the gospel is about pointing us towards Jesus over and over and over and over and over again, reminding us that there's just one thing that satisfies. It's just him. He's the thing that really gives the life we're looking for. He's the thing that really fulfills the, in the ways that we are looking to receive fulfillment. It's just him. It's only him. And what happens is, as we ask the Spirit of God to keep shining light on the gospel, what happens is we just long to look like Jesus more and more. It's, our heart, our eyes are set on something new, and it's where you head. It's like when you're riding a bike. Whatever you look at while you're riding a bike, that's the direction that you end up going. Wherever you're walking, right? Everybody can walk for a little while while looking off to the side. But eventually what's going to happen is, is whatever you're looking at, that's where you're heading. And that's what the gospel calls us to. To have the Spirit of God keep shining light on Jesus so that he's the one that we keep looking at. So that the direction we keep heading is him. That's what it means to be one who's growing in the gospel. You see, reliance on God brings God glory, but reliance on ourselves will only bring glory to us. That's why it's so offensive to God. The sufficiency of Jesus is good news for us, but it's ultimately about God's glory. As we grow in reliance on him, God gets the glory. As our lives are lived for him in obedience to him, he gets the glory. As we overflow in thankfulness for being empowered and saved in order to live for him, he gets the glory. So Paul's invitation for us this morning, let us be a people then who gladly proclaims our insufficiencies so that we might actually get to rejoice in Jesus' absolute sufficiency. Let us be a people who doesn't try to hide and mask and cover up all of our shortcomings. Let us be a people who is, is open about those things so that instead we might point one another to the sufficiency of the person and the work of Jesus so that we might actually have life, that we might actually have joy, that we might actually have the power we actually need to obey. You see, he is enough. He is all we need for salvation. He is all we need for our sanctification, for our growing up in him. It's just him. It's always him. That's what communion is, about, is all about. It's about remembering and delighting in the sufficient work of Jesus.
It's about remembering every week that the, with the bread that His body was broken for us and it was enough as He lived the life that we should have lived. And we celebrate with the cup that His blood that was shed for us was enough as He died the death that we were supposed to die. And we celebrate that all that was needed for our salvation, Jesus accomplishes for us. And by faith we lay hold of God's unmerited and all-sufficient grace. Every church does communion a little bit differently. At River City, you during our time of musical worship at the back, there is a table on the left and a table on the right, and you just go and you dip the bread in the juice. Communion is something that's between you and God. It's about remembering all that Jesus has done for you. And the reason why we do it together is because we want to remember together all that Jesus has done for us, not just individually, but us as a people. You don't need to be a member here at River City. You just need to belong to Jesus. And so as we take communion this morning, I just invite you, repent of your legalism. Repent of your self-reliance. Repent of your own effort to be the thing that merits or changes or affects your standing or your status with God. And as you take communion this morning, rejoice in all that Jesus has done for you. Rejoice in his sufficient work on your behalf that makes you right with him, that empowers your obedience to him. And as you take communion this morning, ask God to fill you with his spirit so that you might live for him. Ask him to build in you a reliance and a dependence on him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just confess that we need you. God, and we just gladly proclaim that you are enough. God, we, there is nothing that we could add to all that you have done to change our status or our standing with you. There is nothing that we could do. There is nothing that we could merit. There is nothing that we could maintain that would change it in any way. And so, God, we just come with glad and thankful hearts. God, but we also just come with hearts that are so prone to wander. Hearts that are prone to trust in and to look to and to rely on something other than the person and the work of Jesus. So God, we just we just come that we just asking that you would root that out of our hearts. That you that you'd give us eyes to see where we need to repent of our own self-sufficiency and our own self-reliance to obey. God, we need you to remind us about the gospel, and help us to rejoice in it always. We need you to create a dependence in us on you and on your spirit. That you might remind us about Jesus, and that you might cause us to hope in him and trust in him. God, we just confess this morning, you are what we need. You are all we need. In your good name.